We interrupt this broadcast with a breaking news update. Last year, Taco Bell cut a number of items from its menu, including two dishes that featured its seasoned potato bites, cheesy fiesta potatoes and the spicy potato soft taco. Those two items will be back in restaurants on March 11th, the chain announced last Thursday. Rumors of potatoes getting axed started to swirl last summer after a Reddit user identified as a verified employee said potatoes were leaving the menu. But as you know, this podcast had some issues with that decision. And um, I'd like to say that we manifested this. You're welcome, United States, because I'm sure no one else cares about this. You're welcome, United States. I don't even know if the other countries lost their potatoes, but... We made this happen. Let me tell you, subreddit for Taco Bell has not been okay (laughs) since December 31st, 2019. Because as soon as 2020 hit, that beautiful place of just people saying, hey, look at these nachos I just got. Or here's the secret menu item. Look how clean this Crunchwrap Supreme is wrapped. Has turned into the fuck Taco <laughs> Look at that shit. Like it has just turned it's into mean. a trash can. And they the, the issue was they removed the balance. And the balance being the humble potato. And now they are putting back into balance. And hopefully the world will be right again. And they're bringing Beyond Meat. So they sweeten the deal. That would be nice. Yeah. I could go for a Beyond Meat taco. But stay tuned for maybe next recording session probably the one after that where we go and get six potato tacos and eat them all <laughs> to celebrate yes because <laughs> that's gonna happen 100 <laughs> percent. i'll actually at that time i'll probably be one week post ultra marathon so i will probably oh. eat six myself oh that that works i'm on a new nutrition plan anyway so i just eat a ton and then weight lift a ton so i'm down for that that's what running's like yeah <laughs> yeah anyway I'm Leah. I'm Bethann. And this is She Will Rock You. Where are they getting a dub in a CBS executive meeting? No. Bitch, don't touch my thermostat. (laughs) The ghost be like, hold up, before I haunt you, let me turn down the thermostat. This is bad. We're on page one, guys. This is She Will Rock You. All right, we're going to cut to the chase because (laughs) this is... We're recording two episodes here, and we each have like 12 pages in our outlines. Yeah, so. usually Lee and I shoot the shit for about five minutes, but we don't really... There's just so much to cover in this artist, which I shouldn't be too surprised, but I, for some reason, was. Um, as a trigger warning, because I like to put those out when it's necessary, I am talking a little bit about death some suicide so for those who are sensitive to that this may not be the episode for oh, you so we're gonna have a heavy two episodes because i have the same disclaimer. Oh, jeez. but i mean also if you saw the title of our episode i would assume you would have known not to listen to that that was your trigger warning but anyway welcome to the experience yes yes welcome to the experience exactly the Jimi hendrix experience so when one hears the name Jimi hendrix and i'm sure a lot comes to mind Mainly his gyrations with the guitar. Really, it's just a star-spangled banner for me, but okay. <laughs> well, that too. And then playing teeth with, with playing a guitar with his teeth, playing destroying teeth. a guitar. Lots of guitar-oriented actions. But what I discovered is this dude, yes, he has an explosive personality on stage, but like behind the scenes... He is just this dude with the biggest passion for music I have ever seen. Like, in fact, this guy literally takes any musician we have today and just beats him. 
and passion for music. Like, I know that's offensive to a lot of musicians out there. Sorry. But as a musician myself, I can tell you this dude leaves and lives and breathes music to a whole other level of an artist I've ever covered. So Brody is very distracting. I know. <laughs> I keep having to like just tap his little belly and be like, all right, enough. He's not stopping. All right. Ooh. I know. He doesn't like to be told what to do. So yeah, so right off the bat, you just gotta know. This dude is just so gifted. And also just as a disclaimer from a research perspective, there for some reason, I do not know why, is so many inconsistencies across respected biography sites. So if I'm off in a spot in two, as far as for dates or timeline things, I'm really sorry. Like I literally was going between his website set up by his estate and then I was going off biography.com, Britannica, of course, wiki. But I was literally for four, I had four or five websites up to just check dates and none of them were, <laughs> no, no, there was, there was just inconsistencies across the board. So Love just, that. just so you know. I did my best to put together a timeline, but let's go ahead and jump into it. Because as Leah said, we got a lot to talk about this dude. So Johnny Allen Hendricks was born in Seattle, Washington on November 27th, 1942. He is the oldest of five other siblings. His parents were Al and Lucille Hendricks. So his father was in the army serving in World War II. This is really messed up. And they don't really give an explanation as to why it happens. I mean, other than honestly, race is the only thing I could think of for this. But when he was stationed in Alabama, um, at the time Jimmy was going to be born, he applied for furlough to go see his newborn child. Usually everyone gets accepted, but for some reason he was denied. And what they did was, to make sure he didn't go AWOL, is they locked his father up what the without fuck? trial in a jail for like two months and he received a telegraph that his son was born that's how he found out and then they didn't let him go to go see him after that effect to where when he his dad was finally discharged he first met his son when he was already three years old holy shit yeah that's messed up shit you you need to go let people see their kids when you're. I know that's a little controversial, but you know, just my two cents. Solution: Don't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the real solution. <laughs> when his dad returned home, his parents would shortly rename him to James Marshall Hendricks. So, from Johnny Allen Hendricks to James Marshall Hendricks, in honor of his father's late brother. Um, so. You know, his childhood, like getting set up and not seeing his dad for three years, that's pretty hard stuff, even though if you don't remember or not. But it kind of, unfortunately, this dude had a pretty tumultuous, in my view, um, to say the least, you know, his dad, when he got out of the military, really struggled to find work, um, which met, which led to his parents like drinking and fighting a lot. Like Jimmy would go hide in a closet when that would happen. And then they would just also move from place to place in Seattle, sometimes being in a cheap hotel or just a cheap apartment. Um, sometimes he would stay with his grandmother in Vancouver. He had a brother, Leon, who you'll hear throughout the story, um, which was in and out of foster care. And then his other three siblings were put up for either foster care or adoption. And 
also he was supposedly sexually abused as a kid by a man in uniform too. So like the dude is just, it, this is unfortunate. Like it sucks how he had to grow up in this. But, um, in 1951, his parents would divorce and his dad would get custody of Jimmy and Leon. Um, but you know, personality wise, he was shy and sensitive, lost in his deep emotions. Um, but he was a good older brother to Leon. Um, in an author, unauthorized documentary I watched, which also had Leon. That's a different subject for another day. But Leon said his brother would take care of him, and he only received one black eye from his brother. From his brother, goal should be zero. But you know, brothers are brothers. Older siblings are a bitch. I can attest. It's the younger Sorry. ones. <laughs> like having an older brother it is an adventure to say the least as the older sister it's the little ones that start it well i mean you had a younger brother so yeah and you started it (laughs) but he was so he's very quiet partly i would say i'm not a child psychologist but i'd imagine what he went through you know probably made him a little shy but also something else was going through his head at the time his brother Leon said music would was always going through his brother's head, even at a young age, um, even when he didn't have an instrument to translate that to. So instead of having a guitar or something, he would have a broom that he would carry around and like play as an air guitar. And he would be like doing his chores and his dad came in and he's just doing an air guitar and he would just bring it everywhere. Okay. That's what he had. So finally, when he was around 11, his dad found a discarded ukulele in a, in the garbage um, and only had one string on it and he gave it to Jimmy and he immediately just started like plucking away on it, getting to a point where he's playing hound dog by Elvis Presley on it, just like on that one string, but you like wasted no time. He's just playing it constantly and keep in mind he received no formal training throughout his life. Instead, he would just play by ear from what he heard from musicians like B.B. King. Um, he completely discarded, like every gifted kid, any extracurricular school activities, such as sports, um, <laughs> to play guitar. It'd be like that. On hours on end. Every theater kid just shook their head in agreement. He would even, he was so dedicated to the guitar that he would fall asleep playing the guitar on it with, with the guitar in his chest and then he'd wake up and start playing guitar again <laughs> <laughs> his brother leon said he would just hear music through the air and he just wanted to bring it down um one historian said jimmy would have been considered a master on guitar at the age of 17 so i want to wow. back up here a little bit he just got a ukulele at age 11 He had no way of translating what was in his head from moment of consciousness as a kid to that point. So this dude was just literally thinking about music the entire time. And he, when he got his resource, that's how much he played to where he was considered a master on guitar at 17. That's insane. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Um, shortly after getting his acoustic guitar, did I tell you you got acoustic guitar? Yeah. Yeah, because he fell asleep playing it. Yeah. At age 15, he got an acoustic guitar. Yes. Um, 
Shortly after getting his acoustic guitar, he would create a band called the Velvet Tones. And not the worst. Not the worst. It's no electric sheep. But just wait. Because then at a battle of the bands that he was in, it was Velvet Tones versus another band called the Rocking Teens. That's terrible. <laughs> that may be the worst we've heard. At the end of the show, the Rocking Teens are like, you should join our band. So he goes and joins that band. So he rolls with them a little bit and they would eventually change their name from Rolling Teens to Rolling Kings because they're big shit now. That's better. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, when uh, Jimmy was in the band, his dad bumped him up from an acoustic guitar to an electric guitar. And during this time, he would begin to become influenced by local Seattle bands. There was one called the Sharps. And there was a guitarist named Butch Snipes who would inspire Jimmy to play in that unorthodox way that I would say some of us remember him. And that would include playing the guitar behind his back, playing it between his legs, playing it with his teeth. And so Jimmy being in Seattle, he just starts playing around the area. He just starts, um, he would eventually make it to the biggest R and B club at the time in Seattle, which was called the Birdland. And according to Leon, once you play Birdland, that's when you haven't made it in Seattle. That's the top of the line. But for Jimmy, since he already rose through those ranks, he had just too much passion. Like truly the dude just had too much passion. So once he like made it to Birdland, he's like, he left. And where does he go? Well, around 1961, he lists in the United States Army. Did not see that coming. No, no. So some reports say, and this is where, like I said, these inconsistencies where I'm on five different websites to like get the truth and no one tells me. Yeah. Um, but some report he was forced into enlisting because he was arrested for driving a stolen car where it, like essentially it was either army or jail. You choose. Um, because that's how bad they needed people in Vietnam. Anyway. Um, but some reports allude to he just did it of his own free will. Like I said, I don't know which one's right. Probably I'm, not that one. Yeah. Pro probably the art, you know, army or jail based on Vietnam war history. But, you know, if you can imagine a gifted musician going into the army, Nine times out of ten, if you're not there to play music in the army, it's not going to be a fun experience for you. No. And in a letter to a friend, he said, there's nothing but physical training and harassment here for two weeks. Then when you go to jump school, that's when you get hell. While in basic training, he begged his dad to send over his guitar, saying he really needed it because that was the only way this dude could process what he was going through. And I understand. Um Almost exactly one year later, he was discharged for breaking an ankle in a paratrooper jump and left the military, uh, which also allowed him to skip out in the Vietnam War. So that's I mean, good. That's kind of worth breaking your ankle. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Not oh. going to lie. <laughs> yeah. Well, for that war especially, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's a rumor on the street, Leah, that that was not necessarily a broken ankle but more of a ruse to remove him from service as he allegedly was not a great soldier. Wow. <laughs> I am so shocked. Examples include he would sleep instead of attending training. 
he missed bed checks due to shows because he would play some shows with another army dude which i'm assuming like bed checks is like your ra checking your room pretty much yeah how do i put this delicately he was also doing some activities in a bathroom stall by himself instead of working dude's gotta do what a dude's gotta do <laughs> and his sergeant proclaimed private hendrix is unsuitable to military service and should be eliminated from the service i mean he's probably not wrong it, like i said the dude is made to do music if you look at this dude how he started off and by the fact that he's a master guitar send him to where he needs to go yeah and he would figure that out just took just took him a little bit of you know slight detour slight detour to get there so he's been discharged he's in clarksville tennessee which i believe is near the nashville area he celebrates by joining a band called king casuals it is also here he starts incorporating playing guitar with his teeth and starts getting known for that um i'm assuming everyone's seen a youtube clip of that if not please look it up it is actually fascinating to watch physically pains me to think about that well th there was a quote i didn't include it in here I don't know if it was Jimmy or someone else, but they would just say, oh, there's teeth everywhere on stage. Ew. <laughs> like... <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. Please move on. Sorry. Um, <laughs> what strikes me is Jimmy starts uh, developing this reputation of this wild performer on stage, both for his antics and for his playing. But if you haven't seen by now, he's just a completely different person off stage. Like, I think it's where you find people excuse me while I put my hippie bandana on for a sec, who are actually one with the music. Like, I actually truly mean that. This dude is one with music. And not every musician, I think, deserves that title, one with music. For example, Blink-182, not one with music. Shots fired. Bowling for Soup, not one with music. No. Limp Biscuit. no. Surprisingly one with music, but you didn't hear that from me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're going to have to cover Limp Biscuit one day. For those who don't know, me and Leah have just had this back and forth about Limp Biscuit. Ever where... since Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. <laughs> no, Rage. Rage, Rage, Rage. 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 Um, go back into our Rage episode. It's actually pretty amazing how Rage Against the Machine is slightly responsible for the creation They're of Limp Biscuit. Directly responsible <laughs> for it. Kind of. Kind of responsible. Directly. <laughs> but ever since then, of course, Leah will post. What music should I listen to? And I immediately put Limp Bizkit. Limp Bizkit. And I'm like, and then no. I post some. She puts Limp Bizkit in. So, yeah, it's, it's been fun. Um, so Jimmy also, during that time, worked as a session guitarist in a really growing R&B scene in Nashville um, and the Chitlin Circuit, which we've talked about in Stevie Wonder and a mm -hmm. couple other times. He worked with artists such as Sam Cooke, Ike and Tina Turner. We have a great Tina Turner episode. Um, Isley Brothers and Little Richard. We also have a Little yeah. Richard episode where we talk a little bit about Jimmy. Also a great episode. Um, but he was let go shortly after, from my understanding, from a lot of those because he was sticking out too much. And what I mean by that is soloing on a guitar. And a lot of lead singers aren't down with that quite yet. Like we still got 20, 20 years We're to go. We're not to the 80s yet. We're not to the 80s. The guitarist and the lead singer aren't the most popular things yet. It is the it is the artist you hired. But we got time. Mix out there telling Keith to just stay in the background. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so however, like Seattle, he outgrows the South and decides it's time for a new place for his talent to soar. Side note. 
when I say he's outgrowing these places, I truly do not believe, I truly do not believe he is doing it in a conceited way. He just really was that good. And no one in the sixties is playing guitar like Jimmy. Maybe sister Rosetta Tharp. She may be playing guitar like Jimmy. Maybe. I mean, Jimmy, sister Rosetta Tharp is the, Jimmy would not be around if we did not have sister Rosetta Tharp. Also an episode about her. But in order to expand his talent, he really did need to go to other places. So his next stop is New York City. But this time he's trying to start his own thing. He first started a group called Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. I hate that. And like most of his projects, they're short-lived. But that's okay because one day while playing at Cafe Bois in Greenwich Village, he in walks Charles Chandler, which you have to say very British because he's British. Uh, Charles Chandler, or as we would say in the States, Chaz Chandler. Um, <laughs> I hate that shortening of Charles. I hate it Wait, so that's much. a shortening of Charles? Chaz? Chaz. Chaz? You've never heard that? No. It's a thing. That's a thing? Yeah. I literally have never heard that. That's uh, Chucky's dad from... Well, I know Chuck. I know, I know Chuck. But Chucky's dad is named Chaz. I'm like 99% sure. You mean to tell me a a mother did not choose to name her child Chaz? (laughs) Chaz is an English unisex name. Given name and nickname, often a shortened form of Charles. Holy shit. Well, there you go. So Charles Chandler, Charles Chandler, he's the basis of the animals, by the way. That's where I'm, tra- <laughs> that's where I'm trying to get with this. Um, but he's pretty damn impressed with Jimmy, as many were then. And now for those who don't know, the animals is a rhythm and blues band from the UK in the 60s guarantee you've heard one of their songs on the movies and TV shows because it gets used pretty often. But he tells Jimmy, why the hell are you playing for these colonial peasants <laughs> when you can be playing in the UK? I am legally obligated to tell you that is not a direct quote and I may have embellished how that conversation went. <laughs> but that would be my interpretation of the conversation. But he agrees And now he's heading to London to form a new band under a contract. And Charles, during that time when Jimmy comes over, he's leaving the animals and he's putting on his manager hat. So he becomes Jimmy's manager for quite a bit. And the first order of business is to change his name from Jimmy to Jimmy. With an I. With an I. And only one M. So it's cool. Special. Special Jimmy. (laughs) He then helps Jimmy to form this power trio consisting of Noel Redding, um, a guitar player that they put on bass, and then Mitch Mitchell, who was a jazz-influenced drummer. Now, it's interesting because we've often said on this podcast that the UK doesn't appreciate their artists like Americans do. They do not. But in this case, America did not appreciate what they had and they went nuts over a new band called the Jimi Hendrix experience in the UK. The UK appreciates American bands. They don't appreciate their own bands. I know it is an interesting paradox we have. So in fact, other esteemed artists such as Eric Clapton, Paul McCartney and John Lennon went to go see him perform 
pretty often to see Jimmy. And I got two stories for you about Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, and a little bit about Paul McCartney involved in it. But story number one, Eric meets Jimmy, I believe for the first time at a Cream show, which he Eric Clapton was part of Cream before mm-hmm. he went solo. And Jimmy asked right off the bat if he can play a couple of songs. And uh, Eric says, sure. Now, before I... Ne- explain any further you need to understand that clapton was so huge in london back then like the youths were spray painting clapton is god around the city and so jimmy comes on stage and he plays a song called the killing floor and he fucking shreds so hard gyration moves and all that clapton (laughs) drops his guitar leaves the theater and nervously smokes a a cigarette (laughs) in the alley like one commentator noted in the YouTube video I was watching about it, he challenged God and won. <laughs> Them's fighting words. <laughs> um, second story, Paul McCartney was on the Stephen Colbert late night show. And uh, he says that when the Beatles had just released Sgt. Pepper, Jimmy covered the song at his show two days later. Like, the balls what the audacity just decides to cover it two days later the song okay. sergeant pepper's only hearts club yeah. band which is not the easiest song to learn no. just covers it that's two days later good for him so paul along with eric clapton and pete townsend were in attendance so paul was in attendance when jimmy's like hey i'm gonna play you a cover and just starts playing lonely hearts club band and then paul's like fuck yeah exactly <laughs> but he also said that I think because of that song, he was using his little like vibrant, like the wham bar that you'll see where they'll yeah. actually like do the um, arpeggio for it. And as Steven does, um, I'm sorry, as Paul described, um, his guitar went out of tune and he asked Eric Clapton to come on stage and tune his guitar <laughs> and Eric Clapton hid from him <laughs> in the audience. Poor Eric. Eric's just like not having a good time. <laughs> well, I think they were all friends. But like they just did not realize like Jimmy was he just like shot up so quick in the UK that word got around this dude is the next guitar god and they just they just all became friends from that experience guitar bros bros, exactly but I mean but also if you think about it bringing Jimmy to the UK is genius because he has these awesome bright hippie clothes insane guitar riffs you never heard of america just did not know what they had because they were too busy telling hippies to get off their lawn (laughs) so pretty much yeah but pretty genius it's not some that's really in london at that time Mm -hmm. at least from because that's 1960 what 1966 so they're in that like modest what i can't think of the word but anyway it's just a different scene yeah so they get the band together. It's called the Jimi Hendrix Experience. And their first album is Are You Experienced? It was released in 1967. I was listening to this album at the gym, not knowing how long it was. It's really long. Whopping 17 songs on the album, which usually like eight. We usually get eight. And they're long songs too. Yeah. I mean, older albums tend to be like 35 to 40 minutes. This was like a full hour. Yeah. A little bit more, a little bit of change. Um, But it spent 33 weeks on the charts at number two in the UK. 
had so many bangers. Foxy Lady, a uh, Foxy Lady. Hey Joe, Fire, The Wind Cries Mary, Purple Haze. Fun fact: When um, Leon heard Purple Haze for the first time, he called Jimmy and said he messed up the intro because he does that. Yeah, it just sounds a little bit off. But Leon, because I love him, he's he's still a hippie at heart. You can tell. He says, but it turns out I missed the beat. <laughs> I love him. He he seems like a cool dude just to hang out with. So historically speaking, it is just a highly treasured album. It's on Rolling Stone's 500 greatest albums of all time. Uh, four songs are on Rolling Stone's 500 greatest songs of all time. And it's in the Library of Congress National Registry. As far as for recording of this album... <laughs> I have a fantastic story to open up for this section and I'm going to pull the quote straight from Wiki because it's just written beautifully. So soon after the session began, Hendrix, I'm sorry, Chandler called Hendrix to turn his guitar amplifier down and an argument ensued. Chandler commented Jiminy, uh, Jiminy, Jiminy, Jimmy, Jimmy threw a tantrum because I would not let him play his guitar loud enough. He was playing a Marshall twin stack and it was so loud that we were picking up various rattles and noises. According to Chandler, Hendrix then threatened to leave England stating, if I can't play as loud as I want, I might as well go back to New York. <laughs> Chandler, who also had Hendrix's immigration papers and password in his back pocket, laid the documents on the mixing console and told Hendrix to piss off. <laughs> Hendrix laughed and said, all right, you called my bluff and got back to work. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, but they did the album in like 16 sessions and they were working on a really limited budget. Like, I don't know how they held, they did that. It's impressive to say the least and how it kind of works where they're able to pull that off is they did most of the prep work in a shared flat that Chandler and um, Jimmy shared. Um, they bought a really cheap rehearsal space, which they ended up not even needing because the band would just learn the song so quick. That's cool. Like these, these are all just really good musicians. And then they would just head to the studio between tour, just bang out a song, just move on. I mean, musically speaking, it's one of the first times we're hearing a mix of, well, not one of the, but it's, it's early yet. So like mm -hmm. hearing rock R&B done in this psychedelic way. Um, one historian from the Smithsonian says it altered the syntax of the music. That's, I think it's pretty cool. There's also just a wit, there's a lot more I wish I could just cover about this album, but I would really encourage you to at least listen to it and read up on it at best, especially from a music and lyric standpoint. Um, I don't highlight too much about Jimmy's lyrics, but it should be noted. I mean, the dude is just, I think he's just a genius. Mm -hmm. And the way he's blending his styles with the lyrics, he just really explores a lot of deep places that weren't just about drugs. I mean, I'm sure drugs had some to do with it but he really is like some of these lyrics like purple haze not even about drugs not even about drugs it's about him having a dream exploring the sea and what it would be like like mm -hmm. you just don't think about that no in songwriting but that's literally what he's writing about so it's worth taking a look at so like i said i'm not sure where this lines up but i'm pretty sure this even happened like right before Are You Experience was released or right after Are You Experience was released. Um, but we need to talk about this one tour that they went on because um, after Are You Experienced, 
like right around that time is when he actually started picking up traction finally in the US. But here's the issue. Everyone thinks he's British. Have they heard him talk? They think he's British. Um, but I think that skewed the, the, the business decision here for this tour because there's a tour with the monkeys headlining. Ew. A nice, they do not a go nice, together. A nice good old American boy band walking in the footsteps of the Beatles. Meaning screaming teens, teenage girls yes. are abound. Yes. Then you take Jimi Hendrix, a psychedelic guitar playing, gyrating hippie hippie. And just someone did not do their research clearly. I don't know if they were betting like, oh, he's from Britain. He's going to be a safe. I don't know what the hell they were thinking, but that's that's what happened. And shortly after the tour began, a group called the daughter, the daughters of the American Revolution pressured a promoter to approach the group and ask him to tone down their set as it was, quote, too sexy. To which Jimmy said, nah, and quit the tour. (laughs) So first off, the Daughters of the American Revolution are dedicated to preserving colonial history. Yeah, what the fuck are they doing? on colonial. So I'm not sure why Betsy Karen Ross has anything to do with this. I don't don't either. I mean, DAR has a habit of sticking themselves where they don't belong a lot, but that's a story for another time. But I will say this. Rolling Stones did have this to say about jimmy and his performance they said on stage he was what every mother feared when she expressed doubts about rock and roll's effect on her daughter here we are leah 50 years generations of daughters affected by rock and roll we did a podcast that's what we did we're gonna start our new dar daughters of american rock and roll yes (laughs) the dar the dar the two r's no no no, not dar 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 (laughs) um by the way it's okay because he found a fe- he found something that was a way better fit because shortly after the Monterey Pop Festival, which featured Janis Joplin, The Who, Ravi um, Shankner, Shankner, I can never say his name, but he was the guy who I believe he was the guy who played that sitar set at Woodstock. If you're familiar with that footage, um, much more Jimmy's, yeah, scene. much more his lane. Um, but it is here that he legendarily set his guitar on fire Uh. on stage. Now, a little bit about this iconic moment. Let's break it down a smidge. Jimmy, in his own words about the decision, he said, quote, I decided to destroy my guitar at the end of a song as a sacrifice. You sacrifice the things you love. I love my guitar. That's deep. I'm telling you, this dude's a philosopher. And then Rolling Stones expounded a little bit more on it about that moment and he said i decided to destroy my guitar at the end of the song it was a painted guitar i just finished painting it that day and i was really into it i had my little bag on stage i had my rawhide bag on stage carried everything in it including kerosene for my lighter which was given to me by chaz at christmas i destroyed my guitar again in washington dc it was accidental casually just destroyed it twice (laughs) But the moment was memorialized in a photo taken by a 17-year-old in attendance. And it was so shocking, not only for those at the event, but those who saw the photo because nothing had happened up to that point. Maybe the who destroyed a couple things. But like actually setting your fucking guitar on fire? It's different than just smashing it. Yeah. One commentator said he went from rumor to legendary. So we get to 1967, the same year of Are You Experienced? The Monkeys tour, 
Monterey Pop Festival. It's a busy year. And the Jimi Hendrix experience decides to just release another album. Um, their second album, Axis Bold as Love, was released on December 1st, 1967. It, um, I'll get the required accolades out first. It was certified platinum in the U.S. It's also featured on Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time. I need to talk about the songs, particularly one song, the opening track EXP. It is wild to say the least because it is a reporter asking about aliens and then Jimmy uses his guitar to, as I interpret it, the sound and noise a spaceship would make taking off the earth. Like I actually don't. So he did this cool pan thing where it's just a guitar going nuts and it's panning from right to left, but it actually sounds like it's going around you. That's cool. It is. I was actually like for 1967, that's pretty damn impressive. Yeah. You don't hear many people taking that creative liberty today to really create a soundscape like he is doing. Yeah. Um, my way, uh, I think the album's pretty cool. Um, the experience didn't really play too many songs from it in the span of their career. I believe the reasoning for this was while the album um, was being mixed, Jimmy had the completed copy the only copy and accidentally left it in the back of the cab. So they had to go back to the studio and just quickly and sporadically remix everything. And it just never got to the quality that it was before. And that really disappointed Jimmy. Who gave Jimmy the master? I don't know. I don't know. But, um, he just thinks it could have been miles better than what it was. So I think that's why he just never played anything from it. And, this is also around the time we really start seeing cracks in the band um, because Jimmy wants to be perfect at everything he does. He has a drive for music. He wants to be the best he can be, but it caused a lot of retakes, which causes, which requires a lot of time, which requires a lot of money, but more on that later. One last thing I wanted to bring up about the album before moving on is the album cover. Originally, Jimmy wanted something that acknowledged his indigenous American heritage. I believe on his grandmother's side, she's indigenous American. So he wants him to honor that. The record company interpreted the word that used to be associated with indigenous Americans. I'm not going to say it. Um, and instead went with a portrait depicting the band as the God Vishnu in the Hindu faith. Ooh, they really fucked that one up. Oh, yes, they did. And Jimmy was pissed about it, rightfully so. Yeah. Because they did it without his consent or his permission. Also, it's just fucked up for people in the Hindu faith. Um, but today, the image is completely banned in India. I can see why. Yeah, uh, kind of understandable. Um, so when it came around to recording their third album, Electric Ladyland, of course, they start in the same month as Axis Bold Love is released because it's as we have covered time and time again, record companies have no chill in the 60s and 70s and they work their people to, like, the, bone. to the bone, which we'll cover more later. Um, but it doesn't release until October of next year, which considering the 60s and 70s pace just seems like a little bit off because they're like turning around things in like six months usually. Mm-hmm. So why the delay? This is when the band really starts to unravel. Um, like we covered, Hendrix is a perfectionist and calls for numerous repeats a day. For one of the songs, him and the drummer Mitch Mitchell did 50 takes. Um, also, as a note, he was really insecure about his singing voice. 
So that added another level of perfectionism. Like he wouldn't let people watch him sing. It was just a really soft spot for him. Um, Noel Redding started another side project called Fat Mattress. And for some reason that was more important than Jammy with Jimmy. So he was on his way out anyway. Um, so Jimmy ended up recording most of the bass parts. And then he basically was just inviting anyone Jimmy was to come hang out in the studio, which made it really cramped and caused like a lot of tension. Mm -hmm. And he also randomly had an impromptu jam session with BB King because I think he just invited him. So BB King came, just hung out and they just jammed. Um, However, that party atmosphere really wore down on the manager, Chaz Chandler, and they parted ways. And the most boring reason out of them is they waited for a new studio to open up in New York because they really wanted to do that. <laughs> you see him. I mean, I see the side of him. Yeah, he's cute. They're both passed out. Good. Well, the album, though, is considered Hendrix's masterpiece and represents everything he was trying to achieve. It reached number one on the Billboard 200. It also featured his number one song, his only one-hit wonder, um, along the Watchtower, which is a cover of Bob Dylan's song. Um, it also is on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. That's three albums that were on to consecutively. Yeah. Consecutively. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> the album artwork. Poor dude, because this is what he did. After the whole fiasco with Axis Bold as Love, Jimmy just wanted his vision to be heard. So he physically drew up what he wanted the album cover to be, which was like some children by this Alice in Wonderland statue in Central Park. A perfectly reasonable request. Perfectly reasonable. And the studio first off was like, no, we're going to do this blurred image of your face. And then they're like, hey, my bad about the last insensitive album artwork. I hope this makes up for it. And the inside of the sleeve is a bunch of, excuse my band pun, bare naked ladies just chilling in the background. Uh oh. And of course, Jimmy has no fucking clue because they will not tell him. Uh oh. And then he opens the sleeve for the first time and he was pissed again. Yeah, I can imagine. Not as pissed as last time, but still pissed. Yeah. Um, anyway. So after Electric Lady Land, the band toured in Europe for a bit. The tensions are just so continuously rising. And it finally came crashing down during the Denver Pop Festival in July of 69. A report a reporter asked Noel, Noel Redding why he was there because Jimmy had announced he'd been replaced by another bassist. Noel had no clue. <laughs> and so he like blew up on Jimmy and left the band. And then um, so there's just it just dismantled from there. But Jimmy was already going in another direction, and he formed ended up forming another band called Band of Gypsies, and he pulled them together like in a matter of weeks because the most important moment of his career was coming up. It is 1969 What's up? in White Lake, New York. And to my grandma and grandpa's displeasure, <laughs> who were 40 minutes away from the festivities, these hippies were descending like a plague of locusts. I'm sure their town was lit. Oh, oh. In more ways than one. I talked about this in our pre-episode, but I'm going to go ahead and insert it here. I, I will probably insert this every time we talk about Woodstock because I think it's an incredible story. It's a great story. story. So 
like I mentioned, I grew up 40 minutes from from uh, Woodstock. It was actually supposed to be in the town right next to me where I grew up. But literally people like my grandparents said, no, get the hell out of here. So they went up to a little bit further up, but still 40 minutes away. And after the festivities, my grandpa took my mom and my aunt and drove them up to the farms to show them all the trash the hippies had left to convince them to never become hippies. That's the story. It is a true story. Um, but so uh, Jimi Hendrix at this time is now the highest uh, highest paid guitar player in the world. And he is slotted to close Woodstock Festival. He was supposed to go on at midnight because that's what you do in the 60s. Just play music all the time. Festival timelines make no sense. Yeah, no, they don't. But due to delays, he went on at 9 a.m. And he was functioning on little to no sleep. Wait, I, I knew they were behind, but I just think it just clicked that they were nine hours oh, yeah. behind. Yeah. Well, The Who was supposed to play. I don't know if it was on that day. They were supposed to play at like 7 p.m. And they didn't play till midnight. And they said it was the worst experience of their life. Yeah, I wouldn't want to play at midnight either. Yeah. But he was functioning a little to no sleep. They had a normal set covering all the classics. When they went to close out their set, Jimmy said goodbye to the audience. And then instead of exiting the stage, he starts to play the Star Spangled Banner, which was not planned for the set. If you have never heard this, I don't know why you're continuing to listen to this podcast because I need you to pause it and go listen to it on YouTube. I don't know how you've missed it because it's in the movie Cars. Like, yeah, it's everywhere. It literally, I went back to watch it. For, it gives me chills every freaking time. And it may be my favorite rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, it's mine. Absolutely. And here's why this rendition is so important. An article by a group called The Conversation just summed it up perfectly. They said, quote, what made Hendrick's rendition so remarkable was his ability to fuse protest and horror and patriotism and hope. In the song, you hear bombs flying down from airplanes and exploding. Your gunfire, you hear ambulances, you hear taps being played for those who died, all surrounded because of the Vietnam War. Um, one author from the New Yorker also suggested that it highlights the wars on race that was happening at home because even though, I mean, civil rights was kicking at the same time mm -hmm. as Vietnam War. And this was only a year, to give you context, this was only a ye one year after Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed. And one can only imagine like the pain the black community and the youth of the nation were going through, not only seeing such a prominent leader being killed for his beliefs, but also being sent to the war front to fight in a war that they didn't believe was right anyway. Mm -hmm. And that the government was forcing them to go through. Mm -hmm. But the song has gone down as one of the most important songs and performances in American history. Um, however, many were not thrilled at the rendition at the time, including my grandmother and grandpa. <laughs> um, but when he went on the Dick Cavett show, Jimmy, um, Jimmy said, quote, I'm an American, so I played it. It's not unorthodox. I thought it was beautiful. And that's really all he said about it. He's like, I just played it. And he would also continue to play that song moving forward. He, sometimes he would call it This is America. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. So normally in his sets, he rarely played the same thing 
the same way. But specifically for this song, he my guess is he was really infusing his emotion and intuition of the experiences and just fusing them every time into the anthem as something different every mm-hmm. single time. So it was like living and breathing, which I think is like really cool. So let's just recap a little here. Um, we are talking about one of the greatest musicians of all time, which I've said quite a few times. Um, someone who lives, breathes, studies, and dreams only about music. And I don't mean to turn this now into a dare commercial, but don't do drugs. <laughs> but, but really, I mean, you have just seen at this point, this dude is just so intelligent. He is loves music. Like, but you just take one of the most amazing musicians, one of the best musicians we've ever had, and you put him on a relentless tour a relentless touring schedule on top of that he's perfectionist so they're doing way more than the average band and unfortunately jimmy turns to drugs and alcohol and i won't hide it he also has some domestic abuse issues at one another from just being too drunk and he like um it was a d- domestic abuse case with a girlfriend that's not cool don't that's another reason please don't do drugs and alcohol because you turn into most of the time an idiot Um, But really, though? Yeah, but really. So, however, in July of 69, he was crossing into Toronto and a bag of heroin was found in his suitcase, which led to an immediate arrest. Um, However, it's rumored that this was a setup. Because Mitch and Noel were told about the drug bust before it happened. Not sure of the intentions, but I'm sure... It was for a very stupid reason. Um, but that weighed on him quite a bit. Like it really affected him. And finally, when the trial trial arrived, <laughs> he did the most interesting flex of all time <laughs> because Jimmy and his attorney justified that it wasn't his heroin by stating he did other drugs, <laughs> but not heroin. Heroin was a no go. Cocaine, fine. Heroin, yeah. that's not mine. That's not That's not me, man. I don't do that. <laughs> and he gets acquitted. Okay. Like only in the sixties can you use drugs to get out of drug charges. <laughs> but anyway. So um so over but starting around nineteen sixty nine, you really start to see his personal emotion state start to become rocked. And of course he was shy, so I imagine there would have been like he would have been more recluse about it too. And on September 16th, he had been drinking at his girlfriend's flat. Um, he, I would imagine he had another big day mm-hmm. at work. He already had sleeping issues. Um, and he took nine sleeping pills. And when his girlfriend woke up the next day, he was found in a coma. And then at the hospital, he was pronounced dead. Um, you know, I said this with Prince. I said this with Jimmy. It just shouldn't end for brilliant minds like this because i would put prince in the same category just as equally as brilliant yeah and but it's like as we discussed in Alyssa hoffman episode these musicians were just expected to burn themselves out and they just had no i mean yes they have a choice but it almost is like they have no choice they have to find some kind of comfort somewhere to get through it and unfortunately a lot of them turn to these substances um it's just so incredibly sad, just the amount of great musicians that we've just we've lost to this. Um, but also, you know, 
the record company demands is also to blame here. Yeah. Just as equally, I would say, as a drugs and alcohol, yes, but also the record companies and money, unfortunately. So at the very end of his life, it's important to know, you know, also he wasn't writing Purple Haze. He's really like not himself. And he was writing more vulnerable pieces. Um, and after his passing, they found a poem by his bed. And at the beginning, some like claims, oh, this is a suicide note, but that's like not very likely. Um, just by how he died, I won't get into it. But this is the last line of the poem, or it's speculated. I couldn't get a full answer on it. But the story of life is quicker than the blink of an eye. The story of love is hello and goodbye until we meet again. Yeah. I know. So I want to move on to our last section, legacy here. In an article for Rolling Stone written in 1970, they write just a wonderful piece about him shortly after his death, after it shook the music world. In the article, they talk about what Jimmy had imagined for the rest of his music career. As a setup here, before I get into it, he wanted to instead move into what he called a gathering of of a big band and making music that was trans, uh, transcendental, transcendental. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and I know that that's a complete stereotype, like stereotype of the sixties. I know, I know, but I want you to read just, I have like several excerpts here and they're going to kind of be mismatched, but I just kind of pulled the ones that I thought were really fascinating because you can see like near the end, this dude's thoughts on music and where he thought the future music was going, it's actually kind of eerie. So let me start with one. I'm just going to read you a bunch of them. We'll kind of talk a little bit through them here and close out. But the first one is, you see, music is so important. I don't any longer dig the pop and politics crap. That's old fashioned. It was somebody's personal opinion, but politics is old hat. Anyone could go around shaking babies by the hand and kissing the mothers saying that it was groovy. But you see, you can't do this in music. Music doesn't lie. I agree it can be misinterpreted, but it doesn't lie. Next quote. When there are vast changes in the way in the world goes, it's usually something like art and music that changes it. Music is going to change the world next time. Next quote. We are going to stand still for a while and gather everything we've learned musically in the last 30 years. This is the one. We're going to come back to it. But, and we're going to blend all the ideas that worked into a new form of classical music. It's going to be doing, um, it's going to take some doing to figure out all the things that worked, but it's going to be done. Next quote, I dig Strauss and Wagner, who are two composers. Those cats are good. And I think that they are going to form the background of my music. Floating in the sky above will be blues. I've still got plenty of blues. And there will be Western sky music and sweet opium music. But you'll have to bring your own opium. (laughs) And these will be mixed together to form one. And then last quote. You know, the drug scene came to a big head. It was opening up in people's minds, giving them things that they just couldn't handle. Well, music can do that. You know, you don't need any drugs. So like I said, I know that's a lot of like quotes kind of Frankenstein together. But what really shakes me about this is when he's saying the blending of music ideas and making class. That's happening now. And it's roughly 30 years. But where do we see that? We see that in pop. We see it in EDM. We see it in rock. We see that electric orchestra. Like the way our technology has come, we did that. 
We Tick. literally blended. TikTok. Yeah, TikTok. All these mashups. He was predicting where music was going to go. and th- That is how in tune this guy was in music. He was seeing the path it was going to go. And he was actually in the process of chasing that path. Yeah. Like, Jimmy is one of those people where he just wasn't satisfied with meeting the top. And I would say being a top guitar player in the world, that's pretty damn good. Yeah, he could stop there. But he had to keep going. And so he was like, I'm going to form this band and it's going to transcend music of what we have today. And I would have loved to hear it. I wish that he could have gotten to make that album. It would have been the most amazing music we've ever heard. I guarantee you. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, please, 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 please. Uh, special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at She Will Rock You Podcast. Join us on our Facebook group, She Will Rock You Podcast Fam. You can follow us personally at Beth Ann Tarpley and at LeahElizabeth.J. Shoot us an email at SheWillRockYouPodcast at gmail.com. And please, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs>